Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Dr. D. Borsma, a biologist and professor at the University of Washington. The Wadsworth Endowed Chair in Conservation Science, Borsma has been studying penguins for decades, including researching Galapagos penguins for the better part of 50 years. Years ago, in a piece examining Borsma research and extensive fieldwork, the New York Times dubbed her the Jane Goodall of penguins. There's major scientific importance generated by long-term studies like the one that Borsma conducts through her Center for Ecosystem Sentinels, reflecting specific shifts in the environment on the Galapagos and other locales, underscoring the impact of climate change. Some of her work focuses on what might be called the interpersonal behavior of penguins and its broader implications. For example, a study Borsman and her colleagues are conducting on Magellanic penguins, which like many birds are monogamous, but are serial monogamous who will divorce, in air quotes, their mate with the aim of finding a new mate and increased reproductive success. Research that has broader meaning for the penguin population and again connects back to climate change. We'll discuss this study. Come on, what other show gives you serious information about penguin divorce? Right, talking animals. Her other work more generally and what most of us don't appreciate about penguins, but should when I speak with Dr. Borsma in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Haiti Akuna, founder and president of Merciful Project, a Tampa-based multifaceted organization chiefly concerned with animal rescue and finding foster and forever homes for an array of cats and dogs who've been in difficult circumstances. Merciful Project is holding an adoption event this Saturday, December 11th from noon to 4 p.m. at Chakra Zulu Crystals in Tampa. More on that event and on Merciful Project later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss penguins and penguin issues with Dr. Borsman. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. D. Borsma back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Borsma. Well, good morning, Duncan. It's really a pleasure to be back talking with you about penguins. Yes, I'm, I feel the same way, and I feel so lucky to be able to talk with you about penguins. And as I noted a moment ago, you've been studying Galapagos penguins for the better part of 50 years. So well, while you're obviously first and foremost a scientist, someone with your background and training could have just as easily gravitated towards studying, let's say, orcas or elephants or other birds. So there must be something that first drew you to penguins and obviously still fascinates you about them all these decades later. What is it about penguins that grabbed you and still grabs you? Well, it's been almost, well, it'll be 50 years um, this uh, uh, this year on uh, Galapagos penguins. Yeah. Um, actually, 52 years, I guess. I first went to the Galapagos in 1970, so it's been a long time. But um, I went to the Galapagos because I thought it was just unbelievable that there were penguins living on the equator. And so I thought that was really odd and unusual because, like most of us, you read about penguins and there's always with Antarctica and with ice and uh, cold temperatures. And the Galapagos is hot. I mean, it gets to 140 degrees on the edge of those islands on a hot day without a problem. So that can fry penguin eggs and certainly is a a very warm, inhospitable environment, you might think, for penguins. But it turns out Galapagos penguins have um, thrived fairly well in the Galapagos. Uh, Hot temperatures are a bit of a problem for them, but they avoid it just like we do. They get underneath the lava and lava tubes, lava tunnels, so they don't get too hot. Yeah. And they can always jump in the very cold, productive waters of the Galapagos. So I guess I want to explore that further with you in a moment or two. But I guess my original question still stands, which is what first drew you uh, in about penguins? I know you said, you know, surprising that they were living on the equator when we all have kind of a, a sort of a different, maybe slightly cliched view of what where penguins do live. But what, as a scientist who decided these are the animals I'm going to study, what drove that initially? What compelled you to say, hey, penguins are going to be my thing? Well, I was interested in the Galapagos, and so I wanted to go to the Galapagos, and um, I read Ibel Ivelself's books about marine iguanas and Darwin, and I was just uh, I was interested in the Galapagos, and then... Yeah. I found out that almost nothing was known about Galapagos penguins, and I thought that was crazy. So that's what drew me to the Galapagos. And then when I finally got to meet a Galapagos penguin, I fell in love. I don't know what it is about penguins, but I just find them um, amusing, 
uh, curious, um, and I just haven't lost my curiosity about penguins after even 50 years working on Galapagos penguins. I yeah. I'm going back twice a year to count penguins and see if we can't increase their population. Yeah, well, that's kind of the work I, I do want to delve into. So is it partly the way they look? Is it partly the, the way they behave? When you said you found them amusing and obviously you were enchanted by them, were there those things and other factors too? Because again, it sounds like it was partly like just as a regular old human being, but of course you were also a scientist, probably intrigued by them as well. Well, I, when I first went down there, I was doing my uh, Ph.D. dissertation, and I ended up doing it on Galapagos penguins. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was the science part of it. But I guess I think once you meet a penguin, because they are so curious and they uh, tend to be somewhat friendly, whether you go and see them in the Antarctic or whether you go um, to uh, New Zealand and, and see yellow-eyed penguins there, you can get fairly close to them. They come on land. Um, and so I just I just found them amusing and um, interesting. So I wanted to know more about them, but particularly I wanted to understand why there's such differences between penguins. And so that's that's given me a lifetime of work. Yeah. So it sounds like in some ways it was kind of a, a mutual curiosity that kind of started to form, yeah, form mean, this relationship. Because, because some, they come right up to you. Yeah. You know, in the Galapagos, if you sit still <laughs> and you're in the right place, um, they'll, they'll, they come very close and you can watch them. And, so, and they're not that different from people. I mean, I guess that's what I've learned out of all of this and I, which, I, which I've enjoyed about penguins. Because they're trying to do the same things that we generally are. They're trying to... You know, find a mate. They're trying to have a good house. They're trying to raise uh, their young, and uh, they're trying to survive. Yeah. And it turns out it's not easy for people or for penguins. And when but they it's come up, much more difficult for penguins over the last fifty years. Yeah. Well, again, I think uh, as we'll touch on uh, more, I think just some of the environmental changes and, of course, uh, fundamental climate change issues probably account for that. But when they do come up to you. I guess there's really nothing uh, particularly dangerous or threatening because you're not chasing them. You're just, as you say, you're just sitting there very still, and then they may well come up to you. So I guess there's really no risk of any bad encounter. It's probably more, hey, this is kind of a cool encounter. I've got a, I've got a penguin coming up to hang out with me. <laughs> and particularly if they're young. Young penguins are just curious. They'll investigate almost anything that you know, looks different from the environment. They're, and they're not afraid because originally, like in the Galapagos, there were no people yeah. in the Galapagos. So uh, there's no wolves. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, there were no dogs. There were no cats. Um, humans have done all of these introductions, whether it's uh, cats, rats, mongooses. We've done that all over, and it's been a particularly a hard problem for penguins because penguins generally live on islands where there aren't these um, terrestrial predators so that they don't have to contend with raccoons or skunks or pumas. Um, that's why they live on offshore islands in general. And of course in the Antarctic they don't have to worry about really predators on land because there's no polar bears down there. Um, in fact there's no bears. And um, you know all the terrestrial predators like Otters and things like that are absent from the Antarctic. So penguins live on, in safe places. But now many of these places are no longer safe, like New Zealand, where they've introduced so many different uh, invasive species, from hedgehogs that eat uh, penguin eggs to dogs that uh, can kill adult penguins pretty easily. Wow. So really, uh, once again, it's the damn humans who have introduced uh, these predators to at least that area in the Galapagos where penguins didn't know any and didn't have to worry about them. Right. I mean, on Floriana, which is an island where we've um, visited to try to find where the penguin nests are, there's a few penguins that have been breeding there um, for presumably several hundred years, but they're very, very few. And what we found is the Penguins that live around Floriana are doing okay because they're breeding on offshore islands. But there's not very many nest sites for them. So they're really limited. But on the main island of Floriana, they have to contend with cats, rats, and dogs. But thanks to island conservation, they're getting some of these introduced predators off these islands. And the amazing thing to me about Floriana is the people that live on Floriana have said, yeah, get rid of the cats and rats and dogs. 
Wow. Well, and that's so, amazing. Yeah. Because most of our problems, as you undoubtedly know, are people problems. Yeah. We got too many people in the world. Right, with a lot of bad habits and bad ideas, and including introducing, uh, again, the predators where there weren't any for certain areas. And uh, so right. this makes me we're, think... We're depopulating our natural world, and we've got to take that on, in our, our own hands and make people better. Because if you want to have a rich earth, we've got to control people. Yeah, well... In some ways, Dr. Borzma, I want to talk more about Galapagos uh, penguins in a sec, but maybe at this point in the conversation, maybe it would be really helpful because you've alluded to one or two others. If you could sort of provide just a, a little bit of an overview of the penguin species and their distinguishing traits just so we kind of have a better sense of the, uh, of the players, okay. if you will. Yeah, penguins are you know, obviously mostly black and white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they come well-dressed regardless of species, yeah. but uh, some of them have uh, tufts of uh, yellow feathers on their um, head, uh, Snares Island penguins, uh, um, the uh, rockhopper penguins. Uh, we have northern and southern rockhopper penguins. Um, how many penguins there are, scientists will debate that. There's really, most of us all agree there's at least 17. 17, with, 17 species. 17 species. Okay. They're all found in the southern hemisphere. Some populations are relatively small, like the Galapagos penguin. That's probably the rarest uh, species of penguins right now. Mm -hmm. um, or yellow-eyed penguins. Uh, they've been going down, too. But particularly, um, yellow-eyed penguins are declining because of introduced species in New Zealand. So they're, they're eaten by lots of uh, introduced predators from stoats, which are weasels, um, to uh, introduce cats and dogs and things like that. Yeah. Okay, good. So basically 17 species. Yeah, 17 species all in the southern hemisphere. Yeah. And they're, they look all black and white. Some of them have some yellow um, or orange, like king penguins that mostly people see. They've got kind of like orange around their ears. Uh, Gentoo penguins look like they have uh, white earmuffs <laughs> um, wow. on the side of their head. But they really are very similar. Yeah. And, and, and in some ways, though, are there notable size differences amongst those 17 species? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, emperor penguins are the biggest. Um, they, they, can, they can be about uh, three feet tall. Um, they can weigh, during the molt, they can weigh up to 100 pounds. Um, there used to be penguins that were much bigger than that. There were penguins that stood five foot four inches tall. Wow. And probably weighed close to 200 pounds. And what happened to them? <laughs> Extinction, which is the fate mm. of most species. Yeah. But, uh, you know, climate change and, and uh, uh, things like that did not do well for some of these species of penguins. And yeah. so they died out. Yeah, I got you. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Dee Borsma, a biologist and professor at the University of Washington who's been studying penguins for decades. If you're interested in learning about penguins, this is an ideal opportunity. And on top of that, if you'd like to ask Dr. Borsma a specific question about penguins or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So let's talk a bit more now about the Galapagos penguins, which, as we've noted, you've been, you've been studying for the better part of 50 years, but I guess you first went down there 50-plus uh, years. So, so I guess I'd be curious, given that, that arc, what notable findings resulted from your research, uh, let's say, in the first decade, and then maybe you could contrast that with important findings um, that have turned up in, in the, say, the most recent decade? Well, historically, I guess the most important thing that uh, I learned is that Galapagos penguins just have a crazy breeding cycle compared to any other penguin species in the world. What I mean is that most species have really well-defined breeding period, you know, like Antarctic penguins. I mean, okay, yeah, emperor penguins lay their eggs in the middle of the Antarctic winter, and they raise the, the chicks basically in the spring and the summer. But Galapagos penguins can breed at any time of the year. You can find eggs, chicks, they can molt, they can be foraging, and it doesn't matter what month it is, it just depends what's happening in the ocean. 
The only reason that Galapagos penguins can live in the Galapagos is because it's a highly productive upwelling environment, meaning that there's lots of nutrients that upwell in the Galapagos so that you've got phytoplankton and zooplankton and the, that's being eaten by the fish. And, of course, then the penguins can eat all these small crustaceans and small fish because it's such a productive environment. And in the Galapagos, you've got everything from cold species or things that you'd think are cold species, like Galapagos penguins, to fur seals, to sperm whales. Um, so a really rich variety of species live there because it's so productive. And so that's what I first learned is that Galapagos penguins are, you know, honed to their environment, so they breed whenever conditions are good, when there's lots of food. And if the conditions change, they desert. They desert their eggs, they desert their chicks, they desert whatever. Wow. Wait until conditions get better. And when so, you say they desert until conditions get better, uh, I, I would guess that kind of suggests there's an alternative location for them to go. No, and, there's uh, no alternative location. That's so what, why they so, got to quit. They got to... You know, go out and forage for themselves. So what Galapagos penguins do is save themselves first. And then after they save themselves, if there's enough food around, then they'll think about breeding. And Galapagos penguins can lay eggs at any time of the year, and individuals can breed up to three times in a year. Wow. No other penguin does that. I mean, you know, emperor penguins lay one egg. Galapagos penguins lay two eggs, and they can lay, in a year, six eggs. Wow. That's... uh. It sounds like it is a sharp contrast from their, their, their penguin brethren. Yeah, it is. And the thing, again, the thing that's amazing to me about this is how natural selection can hone these reproductive uh, tactics or strategies um, so that the birds can be successful. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things you said a moment ago is that, you know, well, obviously just now you talked about the, if the food isn't there, but also it sounds like from what you were saying about all the things that the upwell, that really to some extent as, as the ocean in that area goes, so goes those penguins. That's right. I mean, when an El Nino comes through, those penguins have to quit breeding. In 1972, when I was you know studying these for my dissertation and marking all these nests, I mean, it was different between individual nests, but all of them ended up deserting their chicks. Wow. So there was no reproductive success. So it's, it sounds like the, the instinct to survive uh, overrides any other instincts that they might have, which, you know, makes sense. Yeah, kind because of, uh, anybody that stayed with their chicks longer or fed them too much and, and then the adults went out to look for food and it wasn't there, then they're going to stop. Didn't, didn't survive, probably. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. there's really strong selection. I think one of the most interesting things is penguins, compared to other birds, are really able to fast for long periods of time. So How, how long a period of time are we talking about? Oh, weeks. Wow. Okay. For Magellanic penguins, we had a female that was sitting on her eggs. Her, male, her mate never came back. She was sitting on the eggs until both of them hatched. That's 42 days without food. She could go down to the water and drink at night or whatever, but she ate nothing for at least 42 days. Because that would... Finally, the second egg hatched, she deserted. So that 42 days, other than, like you say, getting something, uh, some water or whatever, she didn't go any, any further or, or any longer, uh, even if it could have gotten her some food, because she was worried about abandoning her eggs for, for too long? Yeah, because if you leave your eggs, particularly um, where there are predators, and this was at uh, Magellanic penguins at Punta Tombo, then something can come in pretty easily and eat them, like yeah. a gull. <laughs> Mostly they're eaten by gulls. Armadillos, in the case of uh, Argentina at Punta Tombo, um, foxes um, that are busy going around the colony looking for eggs. But if a penguin's on top of them, um, they're, they're going to leave the penguin alone. Wow. They can bite really hard. The penguins the can. In Galapagos, the, yeah. the predators are different. I mean, Galapagos snakes are there. They're constrictor. They're like about the size of a garter snake. But they can come in and eat eggs, and they'll eat, you know, Small chicks, but mostly they eat eggs. But small chicks are eaten by rats, 
um, that are on these islands. Uh, cats, of course, and cats can even take adults. So all kinds of predators. So it's better if the one of the parents is always with the small chick right. or with the eggs. Otherwise, things are too exposed, and you've got your almost an invitation to to those predators to say, "Hey, have at it." Yeah, come eat me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an easy meal. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Um, so, at what point did your work studying penguins start to involve uh, noting significant shifts in the environment? Um, you know, bringing more and more attention, probably to 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 the research to the impact of of climate change. Well, the first was actually in Argentina, where um, when I first went down there in 1982, um, I was walking the beaches, and there are just all these oiled, petroleum-covered dead penguins all the way along kind of the tide line. And I thought, geez, you know, this <laughs> this does not look good. And I realized that uh, oil pollution was a really significant problem there. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't you know, it wasn't something that, like a predator or anything, that was killing all these penguins. Yeah. Again, it was, um, you know, human greed. It's a lot cheaper to dump ballast water, which will just be, you know, you're taking a tanker down and uh, you want to take it down empty and fill it up with oil and take it back to Buenos Aires to have the oil processed. So when you get down to where you're going to pick up oil down south in Argentina, Commodore Rivadavia, or whatever, it's just a lot cheaper just to dump the ballast water, which is only a couple of barrels of oil, really, that into the environment. The problem is oil floats and penguins swim through it. Mm. And if you're a penguin and you swim through it, you end up getting your feathers oiled, which means you lose your ability to stay warm. So now you're in the water and you're cold because the water is touching your skin yeah. because the oil is no longer... Um, keeping the uh, you know air in, and so you go to shore, and so because if you're on shore, you're not going to be as cold as if you're in the water, and so what was happening to all these penguins that got oil on them, and sometimes not very much oil, they came ashore, stand around, and eventually they starve to death, because every time they go back in the water, they get cold, so they come right. Out. They can't win. They can't win. Yeah, and that was killing. Thousands of penguins every year. Just just so that oil situation. Moved. Yeah. But now the problem, of course, as you allude to, is now more global warming. Yeah. Um, in in 2019, we had, uh, what was it, 264 adult penguins that died at Punta Tombo and 90 dead chicks. And that's just, you know, the ones that we found. And that was because it was such a hot day. It got the... You know, 44 degrees Celsius at Punta Tombo. Uh, what is that? 120-something degrees. Wow. 130. Yeah. And so, so some of those penguins actually died trying to get to the water. Some of them died within, you know, a few feet of the water. They just didn't make it because they got too hot. The, the, heat, the heat must have come on not only intensely and strong, obviously, but fast, yeah. right? Because yeah. you'd think no, as it was started to warm up, they would... Day. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, from my viewpoint, uh, this last summer. I mean, here in Seattle, we think of it as a moderate climate. It got to 107 degrees Yeah. here in Seattle. Things are changing. I've been here for over 40 years. Yeah. I've never seen that kind of temperature in Seattle. For sure. It yeah. was hot. And what do we do? We go inside, you know? We try yeah. to get out of the heat and drink iced tea. Right. Well, penguins don't have that option. Yeah. Wow. So so th this is what they're up against increasingly then. Um, yes. Uh, These anomalous conditions. So one is heat. The other one is increased rainfall. And that's been another problem. Penguins live in deserts. That's why they live in Antarctica. That's why they live in the Galapagos. Yeah. But... They don't like to live in swimming pools, particularly when they're trying to breed. Mm. And so if you get too much rain, the penguin chicks, because they're covered in down, get wet. And if you're wet, it's like you being in a down coat, and then you go out. Sopping <laughs> wet. Wet in your down coat and stand in the snow. Yeah, and you're soaked. And you become yeah. hypothermic. And yeah. eventually, even people, they become hypothermic, die. Yeah, and that's what happens to the penguins as well. So 
it's both heat and cold that can affect them. Yeah, because, but all you know, products outside of their temperature range. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The the, the directly as with so many things that are tied to climate change or global warming, uh, you see extremes in in both ends of the uh, scale. Absolutely, Duncan. You've got that. That's exactly their problem. Yeah. Wow. And then the other problem we got is that, you know, we've got close to 8 billion people in the world now. And with that many people demanding resources and continuing to breed, um, we lose more and more habitat in what some of these animals need. Yeah. Wow. So that doesn't paint a very promising picture, Dr. Borisma, for, for our penguin friends uh, in particular, <laughs> since that's our focus here. Um, well, that's why I'm, I'm glad I'm as old as I am. <laughs> uh, you know, right. I just, that's uh, a hedge against uh, what, what seeing worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, we have choices. Yeah. I want a rich environment, and of course, I want penguins. <laughs> yeah. So I guess on a l- larger scale, the, the the same kind of growing concern, or what I hope and think is growing concern about climate change and some of the actions that are being taken and discussed you know, internationally to, to mitigate that. Um, I mean, that's important for all of us, whatever kind of creature we might be. But one upshot of of that will be if there is some success mitigating some of this, this will ease up some of these dire circumstances for the penguins. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think there are lots of things we can do, like moving the tanker lanes or not dumping you know, ballast water into the ocean. Yeah. Um, cutting down the number of plastics we dump in the ocean. But all of us can do individual things to make the world, the earth, a better place. And this is the only place that we know life really exists. Yeah. So why aren't we doing more to ensure that life will be there longer? And I guess I think the answer is is because, you know, we tend to be selfish. Yeah. And so we want to have kids, but we're beyond the carrying capacity of the earth. And so we've got to do something about our consumption and our numbers. Yeah, I think like you say, it, it, I think for many people, they they express concern when there's some new report issued, um, but actually taking action to sort of cut back on this or that, that's even part of their day-to-day life that could help, even if it's modestly. So, uh you know, it might happen the first the first week after after the report comes back, and then I think in a lot of cases, and sadly I might be guilty of this myself sometimes. You know, you don't keep up those new habits that could help you in as an individual at least uh, reduce the impact on on the planet. That's right. Yeah. And so one of the things that I tell my students, they say, "Look, you fly down to Argentina, you fly to the Galapagos. I mean, look at your carbon footprint. It's huge." And I say, "Yeah." But what's your carbon footprint going to be? Are you going to have kids? How many kids are you going to have? Yeah. When I die, because I don't have any kids, that means that my carbon footprint ends. Yeah. But yours isn't going to end. Yeah. If you've got two children and they have children, I mean, that's how we got to this almost 8 billion people in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we're breeders. Right. And then the ripple effect for each of those people and the impact that they can have is just just enormous exactly so there's a lot that individuals can do yeah well i don't want to uh i mean uh, this this i think we talk about this and and explore the the challenges of it you know endlessly till the end of the show but i just want to make sure that we don't get to the end of the show without talking about the magellanic penguins and the thing i mentioned at the top of the show about um your study uh examining the serial monogamy of these penguins and their divorces, because I think that's... Um... And we know their divorces because both penguins are back, alive, and in many cases within a half of, you know, a couple feet of one another. Yeah. So it's not like they don't know, you know, that they're mate from the previous years there. Yeah. But we've, we've been studying divorce now for um, 33 years on well, Magellanic penguins. So... so I mean divorce in the traditional sense. Both penguins we know are alive. And uh, they're close to one another in many cases. And so uh, maybe you could elaborate on this, but I'll try to take a stab. And, and so the idea is that Magellanic penguins, like many birds, are monogamous. Um, but part of the study is noting that they tend to be 
in many cases, serial monogamous. So Let's just what, say they have low fidelity. Okay, okay. Wow, aren't you a diplomat? Okay, cool. <laughs> Always kind to the penguins. But um, so... Uh, but yeah, the, for Magellanic penguins, about half of them end up divorced. Not that different yeah. from people. And, but, but here's the thing. What... what what happens, and, and you know, is I don't know if there's a, a general rule of thumb about how long it takes or if it varies widely from, from penguin couple to penguin couple, but what happens actually where they say, you know what, this isn't working, and I'm going to go see if I can improve my lot elsewhere? Yeah, usually it's the females. <laughs> Males tend to own the nest. Okay. So if you've got a crummy nest, um, that's not a good thing for a male. Um, so if you've got a crummy nest, you're more likely to end up divorced. Um, and what's really happened for the last, uh, you know, 40 years at uh, Punta Tombo in Argentina, where we study these uh, penguins, um, the sex ratio has gotten more and more skewed. There's many more males than females. Mm. So if a female leaves and goes to another nest or whatever, She's going to get mated. We don't see females that are not mated. Yeah. But we get a lot of males that just can't attract a, a mate. I've got this one penguin. We call him Turbo, and we followed him for, you know, and I know him pretty well. He, he comes out, you know, and greets me and stuff. Sure. So I know that penguin really well, and we know that over the last 15 years, one female has visited him for a day. But that's it. Doesn't speak well for Turbo and his... Uh... No, I don't know why his, they his the don't seem to like him, except his nest is like almost a mile inland. And it may be that, you know, oh, all too the far. that are coming in, they get mated before they get yeah. a mile. Yeah, I see. They get spoken for. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So, and then once they say, okay, this isn't working, now I'm divorced, now uh, I'm going to go off and see, you know, what my mating prospects are elsewhere. So, like you say... When that happens, um, I mean, is, is, is it, as you're observing this happen, is there any sort of uh, dramatic action or unpleasantness that you can discern? Or it's just no. that it's just, it's just like all of a sudden the, the, both penguins are kind of back out on the market, if you will. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they come back. Uh, as I say, about 50% of them get divorced. So what's the best predictor that you're not going to get divorced? is if your eggs hatch. Okay. If your eggs hatch, you're more likely to stay together. So that helps fidelity. Um, but other than that, it doesn't seem to make any difference. Uh, it doesn't matter if you fledge a chick. It's whether your eggs hatch. That's the most important criteria. Right. So if you are successful in, in having, or having that kind of reproductive success, your prospects for staying together are correspondingly enhanced, it sounds like. Yep. Okay. And then, um, since we've been talking about this a little bit throughout the, the conversation, where, in terms of, because this obviously affects population dynamics of, of those penguins, um, does it also hook in, and if so, how so, to what we've been talking about, climate and sort of induced environmental changes? Does that figure into this divorce rate and, and then re, recoupling that happens? Well, after a like a heat event, I mean the problem there, uh, we had you know 264 adults that died. Um, Magellanic penguins, we know, live many of them live longer than 30 years. So if you take out the breeding, you know, individuals, yeah, that's not going to be good for the population. Yeah, and that's what's happening, kind of, with climate change. Wow. I mean, all of these things are incremental. Yeah. But that's why we've been losing so many birds, mammals. You know? Right. And exactly. also, with such a long-term studies like you've been doing, you, as incremental as these are, they're, they're super tangible to you guys because you, you're going there and watching from year to year, multiple times a year, I guess, in some cases, what happens. And um, so yeah. it's good. I think these long-term studies are really important because they tell us so much more about what's happening to the environment. And of course, penguins like whales, like polar bears, these are sentinel species. So, um, and sentinel species, I mean species that tell us something about what's happening to the environment. 
and that people pay attention to. Yeah. So when you go to 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 look at say what's happening with the divorce rate of these Magellanic penguins or, or elsewhere, how long do you typically stay at the sites uh, of of a field study? Well, we've gone to Punta Tombo for now thirty five years, and we've spent the whole field season there. So my students or I have gone in September, and we stay until the chicks fledge in February. Wow. So uh, that's another real problem. And then um, it's just becoming more and more complex every year. Got to have permits. You got to have more people sign off. Lawyers go through them. Um, so we don't have our permits this year to go down to Punta Tombo. Um, I'm hopeful by January we will. And, of course, with uh, COVID, it's been a challenge all over the world to be able to get into the field. Yeah, I was going to ask you how the pandemic affected your your studies, and and given the we weren't there last year. Yeah, for that exact we reason. We haven't been there since uh, you know twenty twenty March twenty twenty when wow when Galapagos everything shut down. down yeah. um, you know Argentina, and then you look at this with the high COVID, um, and of course uh, I don't understand why people have not gotten vaccinated. I mean, geez, everybody went for polio vaccine. Why has this been so difficult? Why has this become a political football Yeah. when the science is clear? I mean, get your booster, right? Yeah. I, I well, just don't understand. And now with this variant coming, you'd think people who may or may not have been on the fence for whatever number of reasons. Uh, might yeah, be- but if you've got three times the death rate in counties that voted 60% for Trump. Three times the death rate. What are people waiting for? Yeah. What, what don't they understand? The data's clear. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating and disturbing how political and polarizing this has become when, meanwhile, there's a huge uh, medical and uh, health issue hanging in the balance. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I guess my point is, um, you know, penguins have got the same sort of problems. <laughs> you know, we've got to look at what do they need and then be able to um, manage people in a better way so that we can have wildlife around the world. Yeah. So is the thing where you're saying you haven't even gotten your permits where you maybe typically would, is that being held up for pandemic reasons or, or other reasons? I, I guess I'd say it's just bureaucracy. Okay, just generally, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just harder. Everything is harder. There's more sand in the gears. Yeah. Wow. So um, when you were first describing kind of how you uh, responded to penguins and you found them, you know, enchanting and you you, you were curious about their curiosity, et cetera. So I think think most people, even if they don't have the kind of expertise and scientific background that you do, find penguins charming and interesting and... and, um, I mean, most people just seem to love penguins, uh, but uh, again, because they are charming and they look great and they're kind of entertaining maybe at times, but if you've seen them, at least, you know, if not close, up close, then on a documentary or on TV or, or somehow. But isn't there another dimension to penguins that, uh, uh, isn't there sort of a bit of a dark side, at least to certain penguins that uh, you could talk to us about? Well, you mean that they fight? Well, yeah, I guess that's that's yeah, that's one one uh, I guess in particular, yeah. Yeah, well, um, so do people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, for some reason, I, <laughs> I thought it was. I, I thought it was the thing. That's the thing, Duncan. That has surprised me in some ways the most. Is the more I get to know about penguins, the more similar I think they are to people. Okay. I mean, it's it is fascinating. I mean, this turbo that I. Um, you know, if I could lay an egg for him or if any of my students could, I think everybody would volunteer to yeah. get him an egg. But uh, it's it's interesting because uh, he's not afraid of us. He comes and visits. And uh, so I had an amazing experience. I mean, people have these experiences with their dogs or their cats, too, because they get to know them really well. But Turbo, um, one day, he was off going to the ocean, and I was pretty sure he was uh, going to the ocean, and I thought, I'm just going to follow him. So I just walked with him. And the thing that's amazing is, uh, you know, he he would walk about a foot away from me. So I just was walking along with him, and he walk, walks at a pretty good clip. Mm. And he's going a mile down to the, you know, the ocean. So I just follow him down there. And when we get close to another penguin, 
um, the penguin, you know, looks up and acts like it's going to, you know, peck Turbo or whatever, and then it sees Turbo and it sees me, and it lets me pass. It doesn't try to peck me or anything. Hmm. It's kind of like, well, you're with him. All right, right so yeah. <laughs> this, this certifies you as a cool person, I guess. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Well, one last, are... one, one last question or so. I think we're sort of, unfortunately, at the end of our time, Dr. Uh, Borsma. But one email that just wrote in, and uh, I was going to, I sort of got lost track of where I was going, but this this reminded me. This email says, I've heard that COVID has spread to many wild animals, deer, et cetera. What are the chances penguins could be affected? <laughs> I think really good. I don't think yeah. anybody's really looked for COVID in penguins, but... Um, you know, we now know that tigers and many zoo animals have gotten COVID Yeah, been detected there. I imagine Argentina has been pretty red with COVID, um, so I wouldn't be a bit surprised if mm, wow. penguins didn't have COVID. Right. Well, another thing that the, we have to worry about for them, and they, I guess if they're doing much worrying that they have to worry about for themselves, just another kind of threat of some kind. Jeez. Well, yeah. Well, Dr. Borsma, it's been great speaking with you as always. We've been speaking with Dr. D. Borsma, and again, she's um, at the... And if people want to learn more about penguins, if they go to our website, um, ecosystemsentinels.org, there's a lot of videos on there and a lot yeah. of information on penguins. Yeah, no, I was just going to mention that. It's a great place to see all kinds of stuff and follow up and elaborate on some of the things we touched on in our conversation today. So ecosystemsentinels.org. So Dr. Borgner, thank you once again for joining us on Talking Animals. Really enjoyed speaking with you as always. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Duncan. Bye-bye. Bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Haiti Acuna of Tampa's Merciful Project, which is offering an adoption, animal adoption event this Saturday, December 11th at Chakra Zulu Crystals in Tampa. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with something penguin-related, fiddly enough, in the wake of my conversation with Dr. Borsman. Here's Kellen Erskine making his debut in the comedy corner with a piece entitled simply Penguins in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. They have acupuncture for pets. I would love to go to a pet acupuncturist with a porcupine. <laughs> Just for that walk back through the waiting room, like, I don't know what they did to my cat. <laughs> it's the last time I used a Groupon. My favorite animal is a penguin. I just, I just feel bad for that. Penguins are the reason why I don't completely believe in the theory of evolution. Because <laughs> yeah, evolution says that an animal will either die off or adapt comfortably to its environment. I just don't think they belong in Antarctica. They seem cold. <laughs> I go to the LA Zoo. They don't keep them in a freezer. They're on cement and they're fine. Every other animal in the South Pole has at least 15 inches of blubber or fur to keep it warm. You ever seen a penguin walk? They walk the same way you would if you were wearing cold, wet pants. <laughs> this is completely true. Every year in Antarctica, penguins walk 80 miles round trip for food, if you believe Morgan Freeman. Here's where evolution gets shady. If these poor animals have been walking 80 miles every year for the past 10 million years, why don't they have knees yet? <laughs> Their wings haven't worked out for some reason. Can they at least get some bendy legs? <laughs> you ever see them do that thing where they slide on their bellies into the ocean? They never mean to do that. They just trip, and they're like, well, I can't get up. <laughs> Guess I'll learn how to swim, too. I'm a bird. All right, that was Kellen Erskine in today's Comedy Corner with a piece simply entitled Penguins, taken from an appearance on Dry Bar Comedy. Now it's time to speak with Haiti Acuna of Tampa's Merciful Project, which is presenting an animal adoption event this Saturday, December 11th, hosted by Chakra Zulu Crystals in Tampa. Here's Haiti Acuna on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Haiti. Good morning. Thanks How for are you? Good. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. And uh, so, 
You're a relatively new entity on the on the scene, um, a couple years or so. Uh, tell me a bit about the organization, how it came together, and its mission. Well, we were established in 2019, in October 2019. Mm-hmm. I mean, it started with the dream of helping those that need help, that are helped the most. Basically, animals uh, from the streets that get dumped, unfortunately, by their owners or from different situations. Animals are in the euthanasia list, and other animals are medical medically ill, and they have no hope until you know animal rescues like us help them whenever we can. So our mission is just to help us as much as possible through empathy, love, and kindness, and also educating the community to spay and neuter their animals, vaccinate them, and be responsible pet owners. Sure. That's what we do here at MFP. Mm-hmm. That's great. And it sounds like there's a real emphasis in addition to those fundamental things about trying to help animals from challenging circumstances or uh, for one reason or another have become sort of challenging themselves to find homes mm-hmm. when they're otherwise hard-pressed to do so. Yes. So we rehab them. We get them in a rescue. We do a rehab with them. Like I said, medically, some are behavioral cases. Some just need to trust humans again, and then once they're ready for adoption, then we rehome them. Uh, we spend all our resources in the process of getting them healthy and also in getting them into new homes. Um, we are a foster home base, so we need people to help us by opening the doors of their homes uh, temporarily and hosting them while they recover. And depending on the circumstances that they they came they come from. Sure. So those animals that have had medical and or behavioral challenges, like let's get them into foster homes so they're better equipped to find a forever home. Uh, yes. And then, so that we. Mm-hmm. And then we'll work. we also learn their personalities and we learn what their needs are in order to rehome them. Right. Um, I'm a big believer that shelters are not the best environment for animals. Sure. So that's why we're still, we do have a facility, but just to have the, the cases that don't have a foster, but our our big uh, mission is to have all of them, all of them in foster homes. Right. Yeah. Just to, to help that process get to the next step as quickly and, and efficiently as possible. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so, okay, mm-hmm. so let's address this Saturday's uh, adoption event with some key details. So I mentioned once or twice that it's this Saturday, December 11th, but why don't you give us some of the other details that uh, folks might want to know if they're looking to consider adopting yeah, an animal. of course. Of course. So it's this Saturday, December 11th, from 12 to 4 at Chakra Sulu. It is located in the Seminole Heights area. We'll be there with our adoptable uh, puppies, older dogs, like dogs and cats and kittens. Mm-hmm. We're bringing about 20 animals to this event to ensure that we have plenty of options for people looking for their forever home. Um, we ask people to go on our website, www.mercyfulprojects.org, and also get ahead of you know the process, submit an application online, and we do request pictures or, or a live video of their home and we can, we're can we doing adoptions on site, so we're very excited uh, to find this home, this animal's their forever home. Yeah, okay. so it sounds like if I follow you that while people could come out to that event on Saturday and end up taking mm-hmm. a, an animal home, a key step yes. prior to that would be submitting an application and some an vi- video or pictures to kind of get a sense yeah, of the home they'd be going into. Yes. Yes, as soon as they have an application online, we're bringing, um, and I'm going to say this out there, um, we're bringing Raven's puppies. is a rescue mama that literally lived in a backyard. It was a backyard breeder mm. who had her, and her name is Raven. So if you see any puppies that say Raven's puppies, those are the ones that are going to the event, as well as Suko, our big boy. And some of our kittens, weekday kittens, so like if you see Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, uh, cats and kittens, you guys will know they're going to be at Chakra. So just go online, uh, www.mercifulprojects.org. You submit an application, and we'll reply to you as soon as possible and invite you to the event um, at Chakra Sulu. And also, I assume, um, Haiti, that 
you could go to the, the website as well and see some of the animals that we're talking about that will be there on Saturday, correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's great. They will be there. Yeah. So you yeah could... And the website, we have all the animals that not only are ready for adoption, but they also need a foster home. Right. So if you're not ready to adopt, you can, you can um, see who is looking for a foster. Sure. That's great. Okay, so we want to uh, call that, again, attention one more time. It's mercyfulproject.org. There's also social media pages. Project.org, sorry, yeah. Projects.org. Yeah, mercyfulproject.org. Oh, it's plural, right? That's the thing. The name of the organization is singular, and the the website is plural. That's what tripped me up, yeah. So, uh, and there is a Facebook page. Yeah, if you Google Mercyful Project. Yeah, it comes right up. Yeah. It comes right up. And there's also mm-hmm. a Facebook event page for that adoption event uh, through uh, exactly. Chakra. Okay, cool. Well, cool. thanks. Good luck for uh, all your great work uh, finding animals at these you. homes. And we hope Saturday is a big success as well. Thank you. Thank you thanks. for having us. And we hope just to keep spreading the word that people just need to be kind and and compassionate with all animals. Okay? Exactly right. Thank you so much, Haiti. Appreciate right. it. Thank bye-bye you. Now. Okay, bye-bye. Coming up on WMNF, the music kicks back in shortly with Scott Elliott, the great Scott Elliott, from noon to 3 p.m., a glorious three hours of music, as always. Followed uh, after Scott with Robin Hooper with another three hours of music, and we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault. Could be a T-shirt, could be a CD, could be some other cool gift. To the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. Meant to play this last week, didn't have time, but it's not unrelated, I guess I should say, to the magnificent, expansive Beatles doc, Get Back. It's named that animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. If you can name that animal tune, we'll take your guesses when we get off the air. We have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Hope you'll join me next Wednesday when I'll be presenting the Talking Animals annual Christmas Animal Song Special. I invite you to join me for that show. It's always a lot of fun. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast, links to social media pages, etc. All that stuff is there. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for uh, NPR News headlines and then the great Scott Elliott after that.